Let me introduce myself. My name is Nick Boltink, and I have the humble privilege to serve you here at Redeemer Bible Church as an elder. And this morning, we're going to continue where we left off in the book of Acts. We've been walking through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So please open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today. And once you find it, put your finger there and put it as a placeholder because we're going to step back. You see, there's a lot of parts in the Bible that are what we call a didactic passage, where it's instruction, where we're being taught something. Do this, don't do that. We think of the epistles a lot of these things. And some sections of the Bible are more of a narrative form, where it's giving an account of what happened. Now, we know that 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. But sometimes these narrative passages are a little bit more... um, Uh, it's more important to get the background of what's going on. And when we jump right into it, sometimes we lose what the background is. So my job today is to expose what the word tells us and teach you guys how to apply it to your lives. This congregation right here, our church. So as I was praying and studying through the passage this week, the Lord reminded me over and over again of of one, one thing in particular, that these events, these people, and these places are real. I'll say it again. The Bible, the book of Acts included, which we have been walking through for months now, is an account of real people in real places surrounding real events that happened. Sometimes we can lose focus on that. The book of Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus staying with the apostles for 40 days, teaching them and offering many proofs. Jesus instructs the apostles, do not depart from here. Wait until Jerusalem, until the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, comes and falls upon you all. And Jesus then tells the apostles that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus is taken up in a cloud. Real events, church. Real people. Real places. Ten days after ascension, the Bible tells that they were all gathered together in one place and the sound like a mighty rushing wind came into the room that they were and it filled the room. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The promise, the Father. Peter then stands up, preaches the gospel that there is a God and he is holy. That we are separated from God because of our sin. And Peter preaches about the person, life, and the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he proclaims the message that I proclaim to you today. The free offer of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Real people, real places, real events. The gospel is preached. Thousands believed and are subsequently baptized. The church is born. The apostles continue to boldly preach and perform miracles in Jesus' name. They're arrested, questioned, charged to stop preaching the gospel, and released. They rejoice, they praise God, they ask for more boldness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they went out and they continue to preach the word. The Bible tells us that there was a great unity at that time within the church, a great unity. Many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles, validating the gospel message that they were proclaiming. The Bible tells us even more people were added to the church. Multitudes of real people that took place at a real time, at a real place. 
What happens next? They're arrested again, thrown into jail. An angel of the Lord miraculously comes, releases them from prison. And what does the angel of the Lord tell them to do? Go right into the synagogue and go preach the gospel. So they're brought back in before the ruling elites. Again, the apostles proclaim the name of Christ boldly. This time they're beaten and again charged not to preach the gospel. What is the response of these apostles? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and house to house is what the Bible tells us. They taught and preached. These are real people, real events, and real places. And then we get to Stephen, a Christian that the Bible says was a man full of grace and power. And he was falsely accused, put on trial. Stephen walks everyone within earshot through the gospel, through the scriptures about who Christ was, how I was foretold long ago. And as the stones were being picked up by the mob to kill him, he courageously looks up into heaven and the Bible tells us he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he cries out as he was dying at the hands of these men, Lord, do not hold this against them. Stephen was a real man. His martyrdom was a real event that occurred at a real place. And this is where we get introduced to Paul, Saul of Tarsus. And we better know him by his Greek name, Paul. A zealous Jew, Paul oversaw the execution of Stephen. And he began ravaging the church, we're told. And just as the apostles went house to house teaching and preaching, the Bible tells us Saul went house to house dragging Christians out and putting them into prison. The result, these real Christian disciples are displaced because of these real events of persecution, the real surrounding areas they went to, Judea and Samaria. Church God Next continues to work in incredible and unforeseen ways, powerful conversions that are a result of the Holy Spirit carrying out the will of the Father, working through faithful Christians. The Holy Spirit carrying out the will of the Father, working through faithful Christians. The most amazing conversion of all, though, however, is when Christ himself appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul, who's breathing out threats and murders against Christians, repents and believes, and he's baptized, and immediately he begins and goes and preaches the gospel in the synagogues. Paul joins the brothers in Jerusalem, and of course, they're skeptical of this. They're like, oh man, this... This is the guy that killed Stephen. He's dragging Christians out. He was known. But they see the work of the Holy Spirit is at hand. And soon the Jews whom Paul was working with to, prosecute, to persecute Christians, plotting to kill him, they start plotting to kill Paul. And the Christians whom Paul was persecuting help him escape. The Bible then tells us the church had peace and was being built up. Acts 9.31, the church had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Paul, a real man, Christ really did appear to him on a real road. A seismic shift then occurs. Jesus Christ, the long-promised and awaited-for Messiah, Israel's Redeemer, their sacrificial lamb. His sacrifice, the gospel message, was not just for the Jews. 
but for everyone. Again, a seismic shift. And Peter preaches the whole, Peter preaches the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles. And the first Gentile told that we were talking, that we were told of is in Antioch. Church, Antioch is a real place, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Real people there started the first church. It's in modern day Turkey, and it was a major city. It was highly influential, located on a major trade route. After Rome and Alexandria, it was the third largest city. It was the third largest Roman colony by population. And Antioch was a deeply immoral city. Deeply immoral. Temples created for false gods. Idolatry, debauchery everywhere. And it is here the Lord in his sovereignty plants the first church. The Bible tells us that the hand of the Lord was with the church at Antioch. The hand of the Lord was with the church at Antioch. And that a report of this had reached Jerusalem. As a result, the Jerusalem church sends a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit named Barnabas. Barnabas is a real person going to a real place in Antioch, surrounding real events that were transpiring at that time. Barnabas gets there and he sees the grace that God has extended to them. He strengthens them, encourages them. And what does he do next? He travels another 150 miles north and goes to Tarsus and grabs Paul. He says, come down here with me. Paul had been there for about 10 years, church. 10 years, Paul was sitting there. And Barnabas brings Paul down to Antioch from Tarsus and they teach and preach. And it is here in Antioch that Christ followers are first called Christians. Not just a story, an account, real people, real places surrounding real events that transpired. And here we are today in Acts 11, verses 27. And it is the tradition of our church. Will you please stand with me as I read Acts 11, verse 27 through 12, 5. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Jerusalem. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Church, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Like I said, my job to here today, my privilege is to expose what this has to say and apply it to our lives. Verses 27, 28 tell us that there's a prophet named Agabus who comes down from Antioch to Jerusalem and prophesies by the Spirit about a great famine that's going to happen in the future. Now, when we think of prophets, our mind, generally speaking, defaults to thinking of great Old Testament prophets used mightily by God. And usually when we hear about these prophets, we always hear them start with the words, thus says the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord. A grade school definition, which I appreciate, of uh, Old Testament prophets, contrasting that with a priest, is a prophet represents God before people, whereas a priest represented the people before God. And what we see in the New Testament, several places in the book of Acts, and also outlined in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is the Holy Spirit giving a gift of prophecy to those whom the Father wills. The Holy Spirit gives a gift of prophecy to those whom the Father wills. And this, this gift involved edification and encouragement as they spoke things in their own words that the Holy Spirit had revealed to them. Not God words, not God's specific words. Not a thus says the Lord. In fact, Christians are warned many times in the New Testament to beware of false prophets. That prophecies must be tested and evaluated. First, or excuse me, First Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21 tells us this. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Mm. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. First John 4, 1 gives us further instruction. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus himself in Matthew 7, 15 tells us to beware of false prophets. For they come to you in sheep's clothing inwardly, but are ravenous wolves. So we're warned over and over again throughout the New Testament. And here in Acts 11, we see Agabus, a real person, travel to the real place of Antioch and by the Holy Spirit foretell a real famine that took place during the reign of Claudius. And what was the reaction of the disciples in Antioch? Verse 29 tells us, everyone according to their ability would send relief to the church in Judea. Not some, everyone, each according to their ability. Church, this is not just Christian generosity. This is Christians bringing aid to Christians. The church being unified under the headship of Jesus and according to each of their abilities, assisting to fill the need of brothers and sisters in Christ. I cannot help but think of last month when the elders brought to you a real need for real people because of real events that took place. Hundreds of Christians Hundreds of Christians in Nigeria were recently displaced because of mass killings, men, women, children. And we asked for a collection to send them immediate relief. And you gave abundantly. And not only that, but we're also partnering with them in a way that just goes way beyond financial help. Church Christians aiding Christians under the Lordship of Jesus Everyone, everyone, according to their own ability. We get to chapter 12 and it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now there are multiple Herods throughout the New Testament. The original Herod, Herod the Great, was set in place by the Romans and he ruled the Jews. And this Herod was the one that was visited by the three wise men. This Herod, uh, in Matthew chapter 2, he's visited by three wise men. This Herod was also the one that ordered all children, all male children, two and under, 
in Bethlehem be executed. The next noteworthy Herod, Herod Antipas, the one who ordered John the Baptist to be put to death. He's also the Herod that mocked Jesus. The next Herod, Herod Agrippa, not to be confused with Herod Agrippa II or King Agrippa before whom Paul would later stand trial. So here in Acts 12 too, seemingly unceremoniously, we're told that Herod Agrippa beheads the apostle James. James, James, the brother of John, the brothers that Jesus himself named Boanerges, the sons of thunder. James, who met Jesus in Luke 5 and left everything to follow him. James, one of the 12 apostles. James, part of Jesus' innermost circle with his brother and Peter. James, who had this interaction with Jesus in Mark 10, 35. James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <clears throat> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And James and John said, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom the Father has prepared. James, who on this day, he did drink the cup that Jesus drank, as he foretold. And church, we're approximately one decade after the martyrdom of Stephen. One decade after Paul's conversion. And one decade approximately after Acts 9.31 that told us the church had peace and was being built up. It seems like a few pages in our Bible turns, but it's a decade that goes past. And the Bible does not <clears throat> explicitly tell us this, but I can't help but wonder if some Christians were starting to think that this life was going to be one of these. I can't think to help, help to think, though, that the gospel is spreading. The Holy Spirit is raising people from the dead. The Holy Spirit is working miracles, confirming the gospel message. Their greatest persecutor, Paul, is now becoming the greatest missionary. Church, I can't help but speculate that maybe after a decade, Jesus' words in John 16, 33, which said, in this life you will have tribulation. Maybe they were no longer on the forefront of Christians' minds. James, taken into custody, and maybe they're thinking, ah, oh, we've seen this before, maybe. Maybe they're thinking, oh, an angel's gonna come and break him out. No way, no way that Jesus is gonna let an apostle be killed, beheaded. Instead, it's the will of the Lord for James to die. But church, before James' head hit the ground, he was standing in glory with Christ. In the presence of Jesus. Real people, like real events, real circumstances. The killing of James pleased the Jews. So to appease them more, Herod had Peter arrested. This, however, is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there could not be an execution during these seven days. 
So Herod throws Peter in prison under the guard 24 hours a day and intends to parade him out in front of all the Jews after the feast. And our last verse for today, verse 5, says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, earnest prayer was made for him by God, to God, by the church. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. And I'm sure that the church prayed for James after he was arrested. But we are told here something that was not mentioned a few verses ago when James was arrested and beheaded. Earnest prayer was made. Earnest prayer. This is where we'll camp out for a little bit. Church, God has designed prayer to be a means by which he accomplishes his will. We biblically pray with faith and God responds. God has designed prayer to be a means by which he accomplishes his will. We biblically pray and God really responds to those prayers. This aspect of God's sovereignty and human responsibility which run a parallel path is a great mystery. It is a great mystery. But we have some things that have been revealed to us by his word that are not a mystery that we can lean into. Exodus 32. I'm going to read about 14 verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off all the rings of gold in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and then he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses on top of the mountain, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses, Moses implored the Lord his God. Moses implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out just to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to you your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And verse 14 tells us, the Lord relented. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. Moses was told by God, let me alone that your wrath, my wrath may burn against them and I may consume them. But Moses implored God and God relented. 
Church, God has designed prayer to be a means by which he accomplishes his will. Biblically pray with faith. God responds. 2 Chronicles 7.14, Solomon finishes building the temple and God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their land or I will forgive their sins and heal their land. God gives them the, God gives this promise to Solomon and Israel, this conditional if then statement. If his people pray with humility and repentance, then he will hear from heaven. God has designed prayer to be a means by which he accomplishes his will on this earth. Pray biblically with faith and God responds. This is not just an Old Testament. James 4.2 tells us you do not have because you do not ask. One commentator writes, what this implies is that failure to ask deprives us of what God would otherwise have given you. Some of these things are a great mystery, but God has revealed some of these things to us and we must hold firm to them. Jesus' words, Luke 11, 9 through 10. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. There's a direct relationship between asking things of God and receiving them. God has designed prayer to be the means by which he accomplishes his will on this earth. Biblically pray with faith and watch God respond. Lastly, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our prayers affect how he acts. We confess, he forgives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. We confess, he forgives. Church, much of this is shrouded in mystery, but God in his infinite wisdom has given us his word and he speaks to some aspects of this. Those who think that God does not respond to our prayers and who believe that it does not affect how he acts need to check your theology. You, you see, this would be like saying that God is sovereign in my salvation, therefore my faith does not matter. Yes, God is sovereign in salvation, but the means by which he activates the sovereign work of salvation is through faith. And pull the thread a little bit more. How is faith activated? We are told in scripture it is by the proclamation of the word of God. God uses real people in real places to bring about his sovereign will. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, running a parallel path. God has designed prayer to be the means through which he accomplishes his will. Pray with faith biblically and watch him respond. Peter, a real person thrown into prison, a real prison, facing execution by Herod. Earnest prayer was made for him. And spoiler alert for next week, miraculously, miraculously taken out. I'm going to read an excerpt from the Systematic Theology book by Wayne Grudem. Biblical scholar, I am not. And this is a thick, heavy book, but it should be on your coffee table or next to your bedside. Don't let the size of this thing scare you like it did me. But listen to what he wrote. It's powerful. He says, If we were really convinced that God actually does respond to our prayers, 
and change the way he acts, and therefore that God actually does bring about remarkable changes in the world as a response to prayer, as scripture repeatedly teaches it does, then we would pray much more than we do. And if we pray little, it's probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. I'll read it one more time. It says, if we are really convinced that God actually does respond to our prayers and changes the way he acts, and therefore that God actually does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as scripture repeatedly teaches that it does, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. Those words pierced my heart. Church, the people that we read about today are as real as us sitting in here, breathing right now. The places that the Bible accounts that they were all at are as real as you sitting down in this church right now. The circumstances and events of their life are as real as the circumstances and events of your life right now. Unrepentant sin, broken marriages, addiction, Wayward children, lack of faith, hopelessness, despair, depression. There's so much depression in this world. Real people, real places, real circumstances. But God has designed prayer to be a means by which he accomplishes his will on this earth. Pray biblically with faith and watch God respond. Two actionable steps, foundational habits, I want to give to you for if you don't know where to start. And these are my prayers for everyone. My first prayer for you is that you wake up in the morning. Wake up in the morning, and before your feet hit the ground, let your knees hit the ground. Let your knees hit the floor. And be on your face before God in prayer and worship. Men, especially, let your wives and your children see this humble submission. It doesn't look like anything out of, it doesn't have to be something incredible. Fall on the floor on your knees and just say, Lord, thank you for this breath in my lungs. Thank you for the grace and mercy you have given me this morning. My life is yours. My life is yours. The second foundational habit. Every morning, open your Bible and spend some time in his word and in prayer. Spend five to 10 minutes reading his word and praying over it in the morning time. Do it in the morning time. Set the tone for the day. Set the tone for the day. Open your Bible, pray and read. If you don't know where to start, our church website has a great Bible reading plan. Come talk to any one of us as well. First thing in the morning. Church, God has designed prayer to be a means by which he accomplishes his will. We biblically pray with faith, and he responds. Pray with me. Father God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. I thank you for these men and women in here, Lord God, and I just pray for faith, Lord Jesus. I pray that your spirit be in here, Lord God, and that you just edify us, Lord God. Build us up, for we leave these walls, Lord, and the world presses in on us. 
And I pray that we'd push back the darkness, Lord God. I pray that we'd be light and salt, Lord God, in a dark and tasteless world. Let us be known as Christians, Lord, for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen.